I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Paul has spent the first four chapters of this book making it clear that we are saved by faith and faith alone. Salvation doesn't come by law. It doesn't come by works. It doesn't come by observing religious rituals. You can go to church every day of your life and not be saved. Salvation doesn't come by anything we do. It comes from God as a gift on the basis of faith. And all we do is receive it because Jesus Christ has done all the work. You know, I was thinking that if the book of Romans ended right here, it would be great. If it was just four chapters long, it would be wonderful because we're sitting pretty. God has taken my sin and put it on Jesus Christ and he has taken Jesus' righteousness and put it on me. And I will spend eternity thanking him for that alone. But you know what? It gets even better. In chapter 5, Paul lays down some of the benefits of believing. Essentially, he answers the question that you probably ask sometimes, what good is it to be a Christian? Look at verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have. And off he goes, telling us what we have. And in verses 1 to 11, he mentions seven benefits that the Christian enjoys. The first one is peace. Notice verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, whether we realize it or not, the truth is that we start out in life at war with God. Speaking of us in Romans 3.17, Paul says, The way of peace they have not known. And in verse 10 of this chapter, it says, We were enemies. That's why we spend our lives searching for peace. We seek it in religion. We seek it in relationships. Maybe I can meet somebody who has peace and I can join into it. We seek it through riches. We seek it through accomplishments. But deep down inside, there's that sense of isolation from being apart from God. And there's that sense of guilt from being at odds with God, having disappointed God, having offended God. We have no peace. In Plugged In Magazine, Winona Ryder describes how at the age of 18, she was driving around at 2 in the morning, totally distraught and crying and scared. And she says this, I drove by this magazine stand that had this rolling stone that I was on the cover of, and it said, Winona Ryder, the luckiest girl in the world. And there I was, feeling more alone than I ever had. You see, the luckiest girl in the world is not the luckiest girl in the world because she has no peace. And she's discovered that fame does not bring it. Last year, the Catholic Church banned online confessions. That's where you bear your soul in the privacy of your keyboard. But their ban of online confessions haven't, hasn't stopped the process because there are many internet sites and many uh, chat rooms where you can confess anonymously today and that whole business is booming. You know why that is booming? Because men and women are filled with guilt. 
They have no peace. They're still at war with God. You know, some of us know very well what it means to be at war with God because I know that some of you come from backgrounds where you had a sort of performance payoff mentality associated with your spiritual life. And therefore, you lived your life on a kind of seesaw. You had a good day, and you thought, well, I'm on good terms with God. You had a playful weekend, and on Monday morning you say, I'm damned to hell. If God is fair and just and holy, then I'm done for. And so you have this cloud that hangs over your head. And what do you do about that cloud? Well, you endure some church services. You do some kind deeds. You put a little bit of money in the offering plate. And what are you doing? You're trying to get back into God's good graces. You're trying to make peace with God. And yet there's always that fear of not measuring up, that constant anxiety, that sense of condemnation. You know the problem with that mentality? You cannot make peace with God. The Bible tells us that God makes peace with you. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 20 says, He made peace by the blood of His cross. You see, in order to me, for me to have peace with God, the thing that comes between us has to be removed. And what is that thing? It's my sin. And God has taken my sin and put it on the cross of Jesus Christ, and He has paid for my debt. And when I come to realize that God's salvation comes by grace through faith, it's over. The war is over. The struggle is over. The working, the worrying, the wondering, the fear, the tension, the anxiety, the guilt, it's over. God is not mad at me anymore. We are not fighting anymore. We are at harmony. God is not holding anything against me. And the moment I realize that, there's peace. I just say, ah. Oh. You see, I can relax in the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. I can relax knowing that He is the Prince of Peace. In John chapter 14 and verse 27, Jesus said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. You see, He gives us this out-of-this-world kind of peace. And Philippians chapter 4 and verse 7 calls it the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. And when I have that peace, you know what happens? It kind of spills over into all my other relationships. I have peace with God, and I have peace with my spouse, and I have peace with my kids, and I have peace with others, and I have peace with myself. Some of us this morning need to ask ourselves why we're fighting with God about why He made us the way He made us. God, why'd you make me so short? Why'd you make me so tall? Why'd you gift me the way you have? Some of us fight with God all our lives about the way He made us. Peace. It can be yours. It's supposed to be yours. It's the first benefit of believing. Second benefit of believing is grace. In verse 2, notice what he goes on to say. Through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. Grace is my favorite word. Grace means unmerited favor. 
Grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. We deserve condemnation. Instead, he gives us justification. Instead of being objects of his wrath, we have become objects of his love and mercy. And we owe it all to God's grace. Now, what I want you to understand from this verse is that grace is not a one-time occurrence in the life of a believer. We didn't just experience grace at the moment we got saved. God continues to deal with us in grace. And two aspects of our relationship to God's grace are borne out in this verse. The first is in that phrase, we have access. Now, my translation says, we have obtained our introduction. That's not a very good translation. Because that gives me the idea that, that somebody casually introduced me to God. That's not what this word means. In fact, this Greek word is only used two other times in the New Testament, and both times it's translated access in my Bible. It should be translated access in this passage as well. Now, it's a, it's a Greek word composed of two words. One means to bring, the other means forward. It means to bring forward. And it was a word used in the first century to denote the privilege of being brought into the presence of a king. Now, the Romans understood this word. They didn't just walk into Caesar's palace and expect to have an impromptu meeting with him. In fact, most Romans never got a meeting with the Caesar. Why not? Because they didn't have access to him. The Jews understood this word too because when, the, when they went to the temple to worship, there was a big, thick veil hanging in front of the Holy of Holy Places. And that veil was saying to them, stay out of the presence of God. The only one who could go in there was the high priest once a year on their behalf. But you remember when Jesus died on the cross? Remember what happened to that big, thick veil? God tore it from the top to the bottom. And God was saying, because of the sacrifice of Jesus, you now have access. You don't have to go through a priest to go to God. You don't have to come to God with sacrifices. You have 24-hour-a-week access to God. In fact, let me say something that may surprise you, so listen to this. There is no one on the face of the earth who has more direct access to God than you do if you're a believer this morning. That's one of the benefits of believing. You have access to God. And the beautiful thing is that our access to him is not access to his judgment, not access to his holiness, not just access to his perfection. You see, if that's all we had, then we wouldn't have a great advantage of getting into his inner chamber because we would be cringing in fear. This verse tells me we have access to God's grace. And then the second aspect of our relationship to God's grace is caught in the next phrase where it says, in which we stand. I love that. We stand in grace. See, we're not trying to keep up. We stand. We're not coming and going. We stand. The idea is that we live in the holy of holy places where God dwells. We don't just taste God's grace. We don't just touch God's grace. We don't just dabble in God's grace. We stand in it. And the picture I see here, you ever stand under a waterfall? 
Just stand there at the bottom of a waterfall and let the water just cascade over you. That's the picture I see here. We're standing in the grace of God and it just keeps pouring over the top of us. As a believer, all of God's dealings with you are in the realm of grace. In fact, let me say something else that may surprise you. So listen to this. We receive as believers the same favor that Christ does because we are in Him. We have access to and we stand in grace. Third benefit of believing is hope. Notice the end of verse 2. And we exult in the hope of the glory of God. We have hope. Now, in the New Testament, hope doesn't mean blind optimism. The, the New Testament doesn't use this word the way we often do when we say, I sure hope so. In the New Testament, hope means confidence. It's a settled assurance. One of the benefits of believing is hope, confidence, assurance. And what do I have confidence in? Well, he tells me here that I have confidence in the glory of God. Now, what is the glory of God? Well, the glory of God is all that God is in His character, in His perfection, in His splendor. The glory of God is what Romans 3.23 says we fall short of. For all have sinned and fall short of what? The glory of God. You see, when you think about it, we were made in the image of God, but sin has defaced the glory of God. Sin has made it so that we no longer radiate God's image. Sin has made it so that we have scarred that reflection. But in salvation, that process has been reversed. That's why Jesus said in John 17, 22, The glory which thou hast given me, I have given to them. Who's them? Us. You see, God's glory is once again being radiated through the lives of believers because the Spirit of God is in us. And that's why we sing that chorus, In my life, Lord, be glorified. But you know, that's the emphasis I see in this verse, since Paul uses the word hope, is that he is thinking about the culmination of that process. He's not talking about us glorifying God in our lives now. He's talking about the glory to come. When we will have glorified bodies and when we will behold God's glory face to face and when we will share in it forever. Paul put it this way in Colossians 3, 4. He said, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. That's our hope. We will share God's glory. Now, listen to me. That's not that far in the future. We, we talk about that's going to happen someday, and sometimes we think that's an awful long way away, but let me put this in perspective. A hundred years from now, all of you who are believers will be in heaven. Fifty years from now, most of you will be in heaven. Even you Dan and yogurt eaters will be there. See, it's not that long away. It's not that far away. We have a hope in the glory of God, and it's on the doorstep for some of us. I recorded a ball game the other day. 
And usually when I record a ball game, I just leave it and let it run to the end and it rewinds. And so when I turn it on, it's back at the beginning. Somehow this one stopped. So when I turned the ball game on, the first thing I saw was the final score. Now, you ladies probably say, well, you didn't watch the game then, did you? Well, yes, I did. I watched the game. But, you know, I found out something interesting. When you watch a game and you already know the final score, you don't bite your nails. See, I watched the game already knowing that my team was going to win. And that's the position we're in as Christians. We already know the final score. We're just looking forward to the celebration. That's my hope. And then the fourth benefit of believing is joy in verses 3 and 4. Verse 3 says, And not only this, but we also exult or rejoice in our tribulations. Not only do we rejoice in hope of the glory of God, we also rejoice in tribulations. We have a joy when we look to the most wonderful part of our future, but we also have a joy when we look at the most difficult part of our present. Now, what is tribulation? Or your Bible may say suffering. What does that word mean? Well, this word literally means to press down. In the first century, it was the word used of crushing olives to produce oil or crushing grapes to produce wine. It's the idea of stress, pressure, problems, difficulties. We all experience tribulations, from minor irritations to major catastrophes. But Paul says, as Christians, we rejoice in them. Now let me clarify something. He doesn't mean faking it. He's not saying when things get tough, put on a plastic smile. He's not saying add some artificial happiness. Jesus never wants us to be phony. And so he's not saying, pretend everything's okay when it's not. That's not what he's saying here. And he's also not saying that this is masochism. He's not saying when you suffer, man, really enjoy the suffering. That's not what he's saying. In fact, there's an important word in this verse, and it's a little word in verse 3, in. See, it doesn't say you are to rejoice because of your tribulations. It says you are to rejoice in them. Now, how do you rejoice in tribulations? Well, look again at verse 3. And not only this, but we also rejoice in our tribulations knowing. Knowing. Underline that word. Knowing. Why can a Christian rejoice in suffering? Because we know something that other people don't know. We have a perspective that other people don't have. We have an understanding that unbelievers don't understand. We rejoice because we know something. And what do we know? He says we know that the tribulation brings about, accomplishes. You see, we know that those difficult things in our lives are producing something. They're accomplishing something. They have value. They have meaning. There is purpose in the pain. You say, well, what is the purpose? Well, he mentions three things in this verse, each stemming from the other. The first is perseverance at the end of verse 3. Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. That's another Greek word made up of two words. One word is to remain. The other is under. 
Perseverance means to stay under the pressure, to hang in there, to endure. The opposite of perseverance is giving up, bailing out, falling apart. You see, suffering produces strength and endurance in me that I can't get any other way. That's the first thing. And then the second thing that comes, and it really leads out of perseverance, is proven character in verse 4. And perseverance, proven character. Now this word means character that is tested. Character that is approved. Remember those American tourister ads where the gorilla takes the suitcase and stomps on it and then it's thrown out the window and cars run over it and the ad says it's been tested so that you know it's solid and reliable well you could say that that luggage has character because character comes out of testing character is something that comes from our experience of having gone through the fire you see if you think about the people that have made the greatest difference in your life, the people that you respect the most, they are probably people of substance and depth. And how do they get that substance and depth? Well, they get it from having experienced life and learned from it. They get it from having gone through the valleys of life. You see, when you have been through the fire, without being consumed, you have become a person of worth, a person of character. And then thirdly, he says, proven character at the end of verse 4 leads to hope. Now that's interesting, isn't it? We started out with hope in verse 2. Now we've kind of gone around in a circle and we've come back to hope. But see, the hope in verse 4 is different from the hope in verse 2. Because the hope in verse 4 is a greater hope because I have walked with God through the valleys of life. And the hope in verse 4 is greater than the hope in verse 2 because He has walked with me on the water of the storms of my life. You see, I have this hope not just because God said it in a Bible verse, but because God has walked with me through the trials of life. That's a greater hope. You see, getting saved doesn't automatically give you perseverance. You don't get that the moment you're saved. And getting saved doesn't automatically give you proven character. And getting saved doesn't automatically give you this kind of hope. It only comes through the tribulations and sufferings of life. So when it comes, Paul says, I can rejoice because I know that. And then there's a fifth benefit, and that's love in verses 5 to 8. Notice verse 5, and hope does not disappoint. Now, you can put your hope in people and things, and they can disappoint you. A lot of people put their hope in Enron, and they are disappointed today. But when you put your hope in God, you will never be disappointed. Why not? Look at the rest of verse 5. Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Our hope will never disappoint because God has given His Holy Spirit to us. And we're told in other places that He is the down payment of our salvation. We're told in other places that He is the one who seals our salvation. Here we're told that through the Holy Spirit 
comes the love of God. And I want you to notice two things about God's love. Number one, it's poured out. God doesn't ration his love drop by drop. It's poured out freely, abundantly, lavishly. It's like an inexhaustible river. There is an endless supply of the love of God. And then the second phrase I want you to notice is, it's within our hearts. See, that's personal. It's within me. He has poured his love into me. You say, well, Dan, is this just a subjective thing? I mean, is this just kind of an in-your-heart kind of touchy-feely love? No, it's objective. And that's what he tells us beginning in verse 6. He says, for while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man, someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If you want to know if God loves you, look at the cross. You see, most people won't even die for their best friend. Paul says here, someone will hardly die for a righteous man. That means it would be rare. A righteous man would be an upright guy who does everything right. But when it comes down to it, he doesn't really touch your heartstrings. Paul says it would be rare for someone to die for a righteous man. And then he says someone might die for a good man. It would be a little more likely. A good man is somebody who doesn't necessarily do everything right, but he's likable, he's lovable, he's compassionate. And then having established that kind of barometer for who you would die for. Then he answers the question, when did Christ die for us? And the answer is, when we were helpless, ungodly sinners. You see, the proof of his love is that he died for us before we were even believers. People say God helps those who help themselves. Hogwash. God helps those who can't help themselves. You see, that's the expression of God's love. And the fifth benefit of believing is that that love gets poured out within our hearts. And then the sixth benefit is security. Notice verse 9. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Now he's talking about security because he's talking about we shall be saved, future tense. Salvation is past, present, and future. This is the future aspect of our salvation. And he's making the point that if God already did the greater thing, then he will surely do the lesser thing. If he gave his blood in the past to justify you in the present, much more than he'll save you from the wrath in the future. And then verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And again, he makes this argument from greater to lesser. If God gave His Son for you when you were His enemy, how much more will He do for you now that you're His friend? 
You see, it's like if I gave you a million dollars, don't you think I would give you a pair of shoes? See, if I'd already done the greater, I'll do the rest. If God gave His Son to get us saved, then what won't He give to keep us saved? In fact, if you'll notice in verse 10, it says, you were reconciled by Jesus' death, and you will be saved by Jesus' life. Now, what does that mean? That means if the dying Savior could reconcile us to God, then how much more can the risen, living Savior keep us reconciled? You see, that's our security. And that's the sixth benefit of believing. And then there's a seventh and final one. And that's worship in verse 11. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Reconciliation is a big word that means to be brought together with God. No more barriers. And the appropriate response when we are brought together with God is to rejoice and worship Him. Now the word rejoice or exult appears three times in this passage. It appears in verse 2 where it says we rejoice in hope. It appears in verse 3 where it says we rejoice in our tribulations. And now it appears in verse 11 where it says we rejoice in God. And I would suggest to you that these three rejoicings are three levels of spiritual maturity. You see, first you learn to rejoice in hope. When you're first saved, you get all excited about the promises of God. You rejoice in hope of the future that He has promised for you. That's number one. Secondly, you have to learn to rejoice in suffering. It isn't very long in your Christian life where you realize it's not all hunky-dory. There's going to be some difficult things that come along. And you have to learn that God is using those difficult things to make you more like Jesus Christ. You're kind of like popcorn. You're like the little seed of popcorn. Unless you go into the hot oil, you're not going to be productive. And you have to learn that. And you have to cooperate with God. And you begin to rejoice in your sufferings knowing that He is using those negative things for a positive purpose. So you start out rejoicing in hope. You move to rejoicing in suffering. And then the third level is you learn to rejoice in God. You learn that the greatest joy is not in things, it's not in circumstances, it's not in people, it's in Him. Somebody sent me a devotional this week from Oswald Chambers entitled, Do You See Jesus in Your Clouds? And to summarize it, here's what he said. He said, God does not want us to learn something in our trials. God wants us to unlearn something. God is not trying to complicate our lives with more things to know through our trials. He's trying to simplify our lives by getting us to focus on one thing through our trials. And that one thing is me and Him. It's me rejoicing in God, not in His blessings and not in my circumstances, just Him and all that He is. And when I learn to focus on that, that is true worship. 
The songwriter put it this way, And when I think that God, His Son not sparing, sent Him to die, I scarce can take it in, that on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, He bled and died to take away my sin, then sings my soul, my Savior God to Thee, how great Thou art. How great Thou art. You see, that's the joy we have in God. And that's the seventh benefit. Of believing. You say, well, Dan, I, I'm sitting here listening to these benefits today, and I'm not experiencing peace. I'm not standing in grace. I don't have confident hope in the future. I'm not rejoicing in my sufferings. I don't experience God's love poured out in my heart. I don't have the security of knowing that I'm saved. If I'm really honest, I'm not a true worshiper. worshiper. Well, you know, that's understandable because these are the benefits of believing. And to have these benefits, you first have to believe. See, that's the easy part. Jesus has done the hard part. That's why throughout this passage you'll find phrases like, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through Him, through His blood, through the death of His Son, He has done the hard part. He's just asking you to do the easy part. He's asking you to put your faith in Him. He's asking you to entrust your life to Him. He's asking you to end the war by an unconditional surrender. I'm going to ask the praise team to come back and lead us in a final chorus. And that chorus is, I come to the cross. And as we sing that together this morning, if God is calling you, I'm going to ask you to come to the front of this auditorium and saying, I come to the cross. I surrender my life. Lord Jesus, I believe in you. Let's stand and sing together and mean what we say.